Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan. And I'm Akiko. I like the, the first name thing now. We're just doing first names. That's right. We're so famous. We can just stick with the, the one, one moniker. Yeah. And today is all about Amadeus. I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this pod for a while. Yeah. And you were inspired by Bill Simmons' podcast, The Rewatchables. Yeah. If, if you haven't, well, so Bill Simmons, for those who might not know, former sports writer. Now he's, uh, he's done a bunch of other stuff, but he has a great podcast, The Bill Simmons Podcast, where he talks to not only sports figures, but people from all over entertainment. And then he's got got several other podcasts, I think. And one of them is called The Rewatchables, where he and his friends take movies that are, of course, eminently rewatchable. They tend to be from long ago. And uh, they just kind of go around, talk about them. It's most of the time entertaining, sometimes annoying. We're going to make this one entertaining. That was definitely an inspiration for me. <clears throat> I hope we can deliver. So yeah, as you can hear... My voice is a little bit more growly and more manly than usual. usual. (laughs) I won't venture to say it's not manly at all on a regular basis, but today, in case anybody's wondering, this is not my normal voice. You got a cold. Yes. This happens with three children, school age. Yeah. And nevertheless, uh, you are not off the hook for keeping this thing moving along because one of their rules on the rewatchables is that the uh, podcast can't be longer than the movie that they're talking about. All right. And so that would that would be a stretch anyway for such a long... I'm not sure anybody would be listening at the end of the no. three hours. So I so, think it's probably in everybody's best interest. Good. And uh, the only thing I'm going to say before we get to that is that we now have a new website. Well, we have a separate website forever. Stand Partners for Life has been found on natesviolin.com. But now you can go to standpartnersforlife.com. It's its own site. And when you're there, I would love for you to do two favors for me. First, most important is to subscribe to the show, either on, you know, through Apple, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or uh, wherever else you listen to podcasts, you'll see easy buttons for that. And the second favor, less important, but would still be great. Grab our free guide to choosing your uh, next violin, your next instrument, if you don't have that already free guide. It'll also uh, let us send you emails about new episodes. And we're going to start doing some live stuff, live Q&As appearances, aren't we? You say I think, so. I think I mentioned this. No, some of you have wanted um, some live events. I think we're going to hold them on Facebook Live. So anyway, if you're a part of the email list, you'll know about that. Find it all at standpartnersforlife.com. And let's go. Amadeus came out in 1984. One, it's not only you know, one of our favorite movies, but it won Best Picture. I mean, it won, think, more Oscars that year than anything else. I Yeah, I didn't do my research, so I believe you. No, it's huge. It won at least, I think it won seven, if not more, Academy Awards, but including Best Picture. Best Director. So. Ah, that I can't remember. Okay. Milos Forman, starring F. Marie Abraham as Antonio Salieri. This movie made him, well, it made Salieri famous. Was he not famous? But I mean... He was in Scarface, but I guess he wasn't like... Oh, no, I, I, I said Salieri. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, F. Murray You're Abraham. right, probably Salieri was not famous before that. But this was, this was great for him, <laughs> too. Tom Hulse as Mozart. Uh, I mean, a whole, whole bunch of other folks. Cynthia Nixon, 
Sex in the City fame. We'll get right. to her. But very, very frightened. I mean, one of my favorite movies, I, I would put it in my top three for sure. I, if I, off the top of my head, I would say Godfather, Rocky, and this. Uh, you know, I just, I've stopped trying to like make favorites lists because they just change based on my, you know, mood and general health. So who knows? But this would have to be one, or if we're taking our inspiration from the rewatchables, I mean, this for you has to be one of the most rewatchable. Yeah, movies, I'm right? definitely one of the movies I I hold in like the highest esteem. I would definitely say that 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 would never change, probably. And for me, I, part of the reason, maybe the the biggest reason that it's so close to my heart is that I feel like it's one of those movies where a non musician could watch it and they would come away, they would get why it is that we do what we do. They would have an understanding, you know, not necessarily about violin playing, but they would say, okay, this this is worth devoting your life to, you know, I get why you love, you know, maybe it's Mozart or why you spend all day in the practice room. And it's not because it shows people in the practice room, but it's just, that's the power of this movie. It's great music. Yeah. I'm trying to think why that is. And it's not as obvious or as easy to explain as you might hope, I think. Because as you say, it's not like they show people like devoting themselves to practicing or, you know, it's, it's nothing that specific, but it is, it's just like the the spell that's cast by the music is is very very powerful and, and because it's so skillfully edited and and the music is so well matched to the scenes and the emotions i think you know that's i think that's the sort of feeling that people get and uh, yeah so it's not as if it's like about what we do i wouldn't say that but the music is so it's it's life and death to some of the characters in the movie and it's vitally important to all the characters in the movie that yeah yeah anybody that we see on screen in this movie Music means so they're willing to fight about it, argue about it, devote their lives to it. And because the characters are so well drawn, especially the the main ones, uh, Mozart and Salieri and Mozart's father, you come away understanding at least why these characters are so devoted to music, either writing it or performing it or enjoying it. And I feel that that's what gives people then an understanding of what we do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a kind of like, a, almost like an insanity that has to accompany wanting to put that much emotional energy into something, you know, and I think the movie certainly captures that. And uh, as far as, you know, making the movie, people are really playing in here when you see an orchestra playing, it's all real violinists and cellists and all that. Yeah. And then we're always amazed at how good Tom Hulse looks conducting. And F. Marie Abraham, too. I think he looks... Yeah. No, both of them. It's it's actually incredible, right? And, I mean, everybody they show conducting, because there's little scenes here and there where you see someone else. And they really put so much work into into learning and they into teaching them, you know, and it's amazing. Yeah. I read that uh, Tom Hulse studied piano for six months and he never had before. Um, for this, I mean, we we read stuff like that all the time, even now. Well, we I read it about Russell Crowe for Master and and that's Commander you know that's and, an old movie now. That's probably that probably looks you know much better than some of the stuff now. That, you know, <laughs> you're but talking yeah, about Amadeus looks better. Well, you know, even Master and Commander, even you know, well, Russell, Russell Crowe Crow looked terrible playing the violin. He did, but I mean, he he did try. You know, and, sure, I a for effort. And I hate to call out specific shows. Violin or, is hard to f- fake. I mean, it's hard to sure. look like you're playing violin. Yeah. Apparently, Tom Hulse, there were a few places where they really, you know, they didn't want to cut away and show someone else's hands. I mean, because they they would do that fairly often for keyboard stuff. But apparently, there were a couple times they really didn't want to do that. And one of them, which I think we'll get to, is the scene where he's turned upside down and he's playing. 
And that's really him playing upside down. Oh, I forgot about that. That's that's crazy. Yeah, because and it's really you know because there there are no cuts there. You really see him turning over and starting to play, and it really takes you into the scene. But yeah, yeah, they they really they wanted it to look right. I mean, that goes for the costumes, the sets. We we just recently read that some of the actual theaters in which they shot were the very ones where some of these Mozart works were performed. What are we actually, they only used only four scenes in the movie or something were sets and the rest were found locations. That's crazy. The fact that they're making a movie about 18th century Vienna and they only had to build four sets. So what we might do is just kind of go through some of our favorite scenes and, um, that's well, probably enough. I mean, yeah, I mean, or, you know, I'd love to start with like, you know, what was our first experience seeing this movie? Oh, right. Because for, <laughs> I mean, your parents were uh, more adventurous, I think, than mine. So you I think said as you an only child, the I'm pretty sure. Yeah, they would just, you know, I just had to, you know, how it is when, when there's one kid, it's like you can sort of fit that kid into your own life. My parents were especially unwilling to alter anything about their... <laughs> They're not going to get a babysitter and No, definitely. Not. I don't remember. I think I had a babysitter like once. So ah, they ah, want to go ah. see... Amadeus, or, you know, it was, as they called it, Amadeus. Amadeus. Uh, yeah. Same in Seinfeld. Yeah. In that Seinfeld episode, he called New York it Amadeus. Thing. But yeah, so I, I remember seeing it in the theater, which I'm, I'm like so hesitant to confess because it really makes me, well, first of all, you know, gives my age a precise number, but, but uh, yeah, just saying I saw Amadeus in the theater makes me feel like I'm a hundred. But so you were what? Like so eight, I was, I was seven, eight, eight when it came out. Yeah. And so I went to see it and I, I think it was rated R, right? Um, Possibly? You know, back then, it. Me- I'm thinking it was still PG. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, there's nothing like really terrible about it, but you know, the, the opening scene. Yeah, the openings. I, I never saw the opening scene, I think, until I was at least a teenager. My parents would always... See, I didn't see it in the theater. I only saw it on videotape. But I, Video, they would videotape. always... Videotape. No, that's, that's dating yourself. <laughs> the opening scene because it wasn't of the, on beta. the blood. That's where Salieri, right? That's supposed to be... So the whole movie is a kind of a frame story, right? Where it starts and ends with Salieri as an old man. And then the, the meat of the movie is him describing what happened years before. But yeah, as an old man, he tries to kill himself. He's so racked with guilt over having yeah, well, you know, had a hand in Mozart's death. You know, by today's standards, it's not gory, but but it, he, he's sort of drenched in blood, yeah. you know, which is pretty, a pretty violent image for an eight-year-old to see. So I think I remember my parents like covering my eyes, which is super annoying because it was like, well, you brought me here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I decide like there's one thing I can't see. And I had already seen it. <laughs> I saw the blood and then they covered my eyes. So, it was, you know, yeah, I don't know what they thought help. was going to happen. I'm still going to have the nightmares. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I never knew what would happen. I, I would always ask. I'd hear the music and I'd hear the yelling and oh, what's happening they're like oh well you know tell you later it's just it's, it's really it's really adult <laughs> i probably imagined it was sex or something like that yeah well okay that, yeah that's not a good introduction to <laughs> to sex but yeah so so I, I i definitely remember that and then and then you know i mean these these pieces that they use throughout the movie i mean i don't know if it's i guess it's okay to admit at eight that age eight that i hadn't heard many of them you know, until I watched this movie. So it's like, it's really sort of inextricably linked in my memory, you know, yeah, I think seeing so. this movie and hearing those amazing pieces. A lot of pieces I think will forever be linked to this movie for me. And that, that's not embarrassing to admit. I mean, there are No, I guess major... it's more embarrassing that like the Smurfs was my introduction to a lot of 
<laughs> but I mean, then again, I was like six. So like, you know, Schubert Unfinished Symphony, like sure, I think of, you know, one of the Smurfs running through the woods or something. Was, <laughs> but definitely, you know, in this movie, very specific pieces that I, I, when I hear them, I still think of this movie. You know, it's, Well, one of them's in one of the very first scenes where uh, Mozart attends a, a party and meets the, well, it's the archbishop's palace, I guess. And that, that's where Salieri sees Mozart flirting with his eventual wife and and you know the Salieri sees the chocolates going into the room and they right, look amazing. Which, you know, of course those chocolates they always they always look so delicious. Yeah. To me, I, I yeah, and the, like when F. Murray Abraham eats one of them, it it just looks. It does. That's delicious. that's great acting. Yes, <laughs> actually, it was probably actually was delicious. But yeah, the, the, and then he comes out, and he hears the, the Mozart Grand Partita. But it's it's the very opening. It is the very opening of the piece, which is the other great thing that you know they don't start in the middle of pieces. Well, this is um, it's not the first movement, right? Oh, it's not. I, I think it is, was. that's the piece. It starts with a kind of a march, right? Dun 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 dun. dun, dun, dun. I'll have to check that. Oh, but I remember maybe. being disappointed okay. when I finally. Oh, uh, okay. Piece. So scratch that. Yeah, that, that, that it's not. It's well, not they the start beginning. at the beginning of the movement. They do, and um, and I'm going to say something really terrible. It's probably going to offend. A bunch of wind players if we have any listening but i so you know the only time i'd heard this piece was in the movie and for whatever reason i never had the intellectual curiosity to like go seek it out and you know listen to the whole thing but i you know years later when i was in ottawa watching you play guest concertmaster in the national arts center orchestra you know of course this was programmed on the same night that you were playing other stuff. Of course, you weren't playing this because it's wins only. And then I was so excited, you know. And it's the I piece from Amadeus. <laughs> Basically, you know, I make fun of people who think the Barbara Adagio is the soundtrack to Platoon. But, you know, here I am, you know, Grand Partita is the soundtrack to Amadeus. And then, and it just, I'm sorry, it, this is so offensive. It just, it's so long, you know. It's so I, long. It's like 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Something, something like, that. like that. I, I had the same reaction the first time I heard the whole thing. Oh, it's so terrible. You know, I'm so... Such a philistine. So yeah, I just you know I heard it and I was like, oh, so like <laughs> they used the best part in that movie, the part that's not in the movie. Like they lost me, you know, after the eight measures or whatever. That's so terrible. And, and you know what's so horrible? I also felt that way about the Requiem for a while. And you know, that's we, the central piece to this whole movie. I mean, sure. And I, I, you know, that piece I did really seek out after the movie because I remember I had a tape, a cassette tape of it. Yeah. Know? And I, and I was because I loved that piece so much based on, you know, how it was represented in the, in the movie. And of course it is a great piece, but you know, I went out and bought the recording and then I, I, I remember thinking like this piece kind of, you know, <laughs> I guess a little bit, a little bit long winded and, you know, I was eight. So you have to cut me some slack, I guess, but you know, there are different completions probably varying. Yeah. Well, that's the thing skill. is that just like in the movie, he really didn't complete it in real life. And so what we perform is, written by other people yeah so honestly that you know after the uh lacrimosa, lacrimosa yeah after the lacrimosa those eight measures i do you know there's part of me that kind of kind of goes away a little bit after after that well it is striking that we know you know you can see <laughs> that those are the last eight bars of music he ever wrote and you know to imagine you know whether it happened we know it didn't exactly happen the way it did in the movie but that's as good a an idea as any, this, uh, you know, someone standing over him, browbeating him, trying to get him to complete it. And he just, his clock runs out and 
other people have to finish the piece. I mean, the, those opening bars of the Lacrimosa are, are incredible, incredible music. And I, yeah. I hope it's not just because I associate it with this amazing, beautiful movie, but it really is like, it's, it's incredibly moving. And, and I assumed he orchestrated it too, I hope. I, yeah, I can't even tell you that. I, I don't know enough about what parts he completed. Some, I'm thinking of the movie. I'm like, was he orchestrating it in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those are, those are my feelings about the music they use and, 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 you know, the, the way that I still feel about those pieces and, you know, just, I'll never be able to th- think of those, those pieces without the movie. So. Yeah, I agree. Well, do you remember actually playing abduction from the Seraglio, the opera in Chicago? You know, I, I didn't, I didn't play that because I only remember you coming home, <laughs> like just looking kind of shell shocked having had a triangle ringing in your ear. For oh, like, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and I should have remembered because they make a big deal in the movie about how it's set in Turkey and this, I, I feel like in, yeah, in Beethoven nine and uh, any classical music we play where there's supposed to have been some kind of Turkish band, there's always a triangle in it. And so right. there was a lot of triangle in abduction from the Seraglio. And when I first played it, I was sitting in the back of the violin section in Chicago, right in front of the triangle. And yeah, I later learned that the triangle is one of the loudest instruments in the orchestra, at least in a certain radius. It's very directional, Ooh, but it's almost like sitting in front of a piccolo, which is, that's like suicidal. But that's the opera in the movie where the emperor tells him there are too many notes. I think Salieri says something like like fireworks whizzing up and down at the fairground. And so when I actually finally had the chance to play that piece, I thought, Ah, oh, that's kind of true. I, you know, playing. And I'm always kind of confused by that scene. Actually, in the movie, it's like, does he? It seems like the one time, like he doesn't actually admire the writing, or, or are we supposed to believe that he's already kind of embittered or something? The rest of the time, it seems like no matter how bitter he is, he has to, he has to concede just how masterful Mozart's writing is. But in this case, I was always a little bit confounded by that. Like, is he actually saying, like, yeah, this is like the one? The one time where he felt like it wasn't, you know. That's true. I was confused by that too. It does seem like he just doesn't like that piece of Mozart's and maybe there's some historical, I mean, they have letters of Salieri's as well as, I mean, they have a lot of letters of Mozart's. Yeah. Maybe he just didn't like that one piece, but it was (laughs) fun to finally play it and have my hand feel the sense of too many notes as the emperor says, (laughs) simply cut a few. And yeah. And, and I think, I think we also have to confess that we're not always, we didn't always look forward to playing the Mozart operas. I mean, we'd had colleagues who specifically would, you know, like I, I'm dying to play Don Giovanni and probably I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing people running away from our podcast right now because they're like, what kind of idiots don't love playing Mozart op- operas, you know, but you know, they're long and, and the recitatives they do go on sometimes. And Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've slowly warmed to many more operas than I used to. Yeah, I used to just hate everything to do with opera, and I don't know why. I, I don't know why that is, but it's a sort. You I know, enjoyed it, playing the three big Mozart operas that we did a few years ago here in LA. I really did. Did, did I miss that? Like what you missed there? at least one, if not two of them. How is that possible? Oh, because well, it was only a partial orchestra, right? And you may have been on maternity for okay. one of them. Yeah, I, I I don't really remember doing. We did, yeah, Magic Flute, Don Giovanni, and. Was it Marriage of Figaro? Must have been. It's possible I missed all of them. I mean, I, you know, I, anyway, so yeah, I did. And Don Giovanni, you know, of course, features pretty, I mean, very prominently in the movie. That's the one where he supposedly 
you know, includes a character that's his, his father. It's his father figure on stage wearing the same costume as, you know, as the one in which he appeared in the movie. Right. Which, you know, and it's hard because so much of the movie is, as we know, yeah, it's made up. Yeah. You know, and, and, but it, it, it's so convincingly done. I think it's hard not to think, oh, you know, that, you know, that probably really happened or it's maybe that happened, you know? Right. I mean, sure. when we don't know and when there's no way to really know some of the answers to these questions, then you'd better make up something that <laughs> makes a lot of dramatic sense. And, and that's really what they did. Right. And then what, what was the, what was the history of how the screenplay came to to life, it was a play on Broadway first. Yeah, it, it had been a very successful play for I think at least five years. Wow, but as okay. far as I, I don't know much about, so Peter Schaefer wrote the play, right? But um, I don't know much about his writing of the play and what, yeah, what his inspiration was exactly. But the actor who played who played Mozart in the Broadway production was Schickenator. Right. right. In, He's in, in this movie, but in a much less prominent part than, than Mozart. And so I, that too, I don't know how that came about. Yeah. I've always wondered, <laughs> did he bristle at playing a lesser part in the film? Yeah. Maybe he just wasn't available for however long, you know, it took to shoot the movie. Things happen in movies for so many reasons. Yeah. I mean, we've, you know, we always read about all the, the crazy casting stuff that went on behind the scenes that the Godfather. <laughs> well, but so, I mean, one thing that is interesting, uh, so many of the actors being American, because this was not primarily an American movie, so to speak. But I, I know that the director's instructions to the actors was basically to, to simply use the accents you've got. You know, he didn't want and, yeah, and that, Tom that Pulse or really well. Elizabeth Barrage to try to speak any other way. Now, she was a pretty much a last minute replacement. Oh, that I didn't know. So, it. Yeah. The original actress, I think, broke her leg or something right before filming was to begin. Something where she couldn't, she just wasn't going to be able to do it. And then those who were British, I think, were encouraged to just keep their British accents. And, oh, you mean like Charles Kay? Right. Who else was there? Um, I guess like a lot of the court people, they were all... Right. But, you know, and as a kid, I never even gave this a second thought. And so... I suppose that was a wise decision to just let everybody use their natural voice. But the emperor, for example, is American. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, it, it goes with his character. Wait, so what are the things that we've seen him in? He was in... Well, Ferris Bueller's Bueller. Day Off. I mean, of he's... Of course. <laughs> Principal Ed Rooney. <laughs> but was he also in, um, you know, Pee-wee? No, he wasn't in Pee-wee. Oh, no, but he he was, he's friends with, or was friends with Paul Rubens, who oh, played Pee Wee. Oh, that's why I'm thinking, <laughs> association. All right, well, scratch. Yeah. Right, so I remember thinking what a bizarre casting decision had been made. Well, with, you know, with the Emperor, when I saw him in Ferris Bueller, I was like, who who thought he was going to play a great Austrian Emperor? <laughs> it's so <laughs> Well, though weird. Ferris Bueller came after this. Oh, came but, after, okay. But still, I mean... Yeah, just letting someone play him with an American accent and even American mannerisms, basically. He just doesn't act royal exactly. But, you know, it, it, I guess it's kind of tied to Tom Hulse. Because, I mean, who who would have seen that being... Yeah. You know, that seems like such a brilliant stroke of casting, I think. I mean, I, I, I mean he was certainly amazing in, in the movie. Yes. But I, I just can't imagine who saw him and thought this man should play you know, an eccentric genius, an eccentric European genius. It just, I, and I think that it totally works because 
because they really went with the irreverent side of his personality. Yeah. And we've had friends who, musician friends actually, who don't love this movie because of that. They feel like the Mozart character is just too silly, too oddball. I mean, we have friends, well, we know somebody, you know, Lorraine Nameless, who just thinks it's super cheesy. So, you know, those people are out there, the professional musicians who look at this and say, that's just, it's so, you know, so that's our disclaimer. I mean, I think this is our feeling about this. I wouldn't say every musician feels it's play. And also we have a very close friend who lives very close to here who has never seen the movie, who is a professional cellist. So how is that even possible? Yeah. I think we ordered him to go home and watch it. I'm sure he didn't, he didn't take us seriously. <laughs> Not yet. We're going to, we'll have him here on the podcast and drive yeah, if the he doesn't, If he doesn't watch it in the next few weeks, we're going to out him. <laughs> that's okay. That, announce that's his name threat. and address on You've the been air. warned. Just to switch to another scene and another topic, because I know it's a scene dear to your heart too, when Mozart's wife finally meets with Salieri basically to beg for his help. And he takes the music that she's brought him and asks if he can keep it to look at it. And right. when she tells him that these are the original scores... And it just shows him leafing through them. And, you know, it took me forever to figure out the significance of that. Oh, yeah. I think maybe if, especially if you're not a musician, because even if you are, like, like, what do you mean these are originals? Like, I don't, like, why would he? Right. Be, I mean, of course, of there were no copiers, looked. you know, but. It's kind of two meanings there, right? I mean, the, the thought that somebody would <laughs> pilfer the only copies of pieces of music and bring them somewhere but then i wasn't he also supposed to be astonished at how they looked because mozart was famous for just in many cases quote unquote compute composing music in his head and then just writing it out right no so errors guess, so he was supposed to be normal surprised. circumstances what happens right like a composer will make sketches they'll they'll yeah. have themes written out and then they'll sort of like if I, you look at beethoven a lot of beethoven's original scores they're just a mess everything's scratched out and I see. So yeah, I, I guess I haven't looked at enough original scores to know. But I mean, I assume there's always a clean copy. Finally, that's, you know, the the one. So I guess the point of this scene is that the clean copy is the one that he just, yeah, yeah. composed straight from his brain. But don't you love how they play? They play the pieces. Yeah. Just as he shuffles they're really, through them. They're, yeah, that I almost, if I thought about it, I bet I could come up with the order because it's, it's pretty striking. <laughs> And they've got the flute and harp concerto. Which is, you know, the, of course, the first time I ever heard that. There's a little bit of the Sinfonia Concertante, I yeah. think, right? Yeah, there is. And then just he's so, it's finally, it's so overwhelming that he just drops them all in a heap on the floor. Now, how do you act that? It's incredible. And we wouldn't have to spend much time on this, but there there is a director's cut of the movie in which they included, I think, 20 minutes worth of... Blech extra Boo. stuff Boo. and one you know one of the major extra scenes happens right about now it's, and because, it's terrible yeah i agree it's better without but yeah in the director's cut they write at this point they very explicitly show the the, the quid pro quo you know he salary says you know sleep with me or else i'm not going to help you guys so yeah and then they show such a like you know harassment in the workplace video <laughs> well <laughs> Yeah, the 18th century style. Back then, they just came out and said it. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I guess that's... But they just, you know, they kind of hinted at it in the original. And because of that, there's a scene at the end of the movie that didn't always make a ton of sense to me. And it makes more sense if you are watching the director's cut because they include more. Because at the very end of the movie... Right, because she's sobbing. That's right. 
Yeah, the end of the movie when she's so furious just to see Salieri. Right, but even immediately after that, the scene where she's like, you know, Mozart comes home and he he finds her just like sobbing, hysterical. And Right, okay, that's true. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, it makes some sense based on, you know, in the origin- so in the in the edited version, you know, he, he just walks away and he's very rude. It just, it just seems like he's he's he just completely cuts her off and it's, right. it's very rude. So yeah, she goes and she's sobbing and it, it's it's not jarring necessarily, but when you see that, you're like, well, like okay, I, I guess it was supposed to be like he, pro- you know, he kind of propositioned her and then she, you know, she was so appalled that she she was really upset and was crying. She couldn't tell Mozart why. So I guess that, you know, of course, from that perspective, but it's just it's just such a better movie without the extra stuff. I agree. In general. I agree. I wanted to mention the director's cut aspect because that that may be all you can buy now. Yeah, which is terrible. It's like Star Wars. Like, you should be able to buy the the non, you know, at, the non tampered with. Or I guess, you know, <laughs> supposedly it's the non tampered with version. But What do you think of the scene, the party scene where he's um, asked to play a piece in the style of the different composers? Oh, it's awesome, right? <laughs> have you ever seen anybody do that? Yes. Uh, who's I that? I have. My friend Songjin, the violist. Oh. Yeah, he was a really good pianist and he... Oh, and he would do that on piano. Or he is, okay. he's out there somewhere. He's, uh, yeah, he's he's a really good pianist and he was able to... I think it's when we were playing uh, the Brahms B-flat quartet. I think that he took some of the themes and just turned them into like lounge... Oh, really? Yeah, no, yeah, it was yeah. pretty cool. So that I, I specifically remember like, oh, that's like from Amadeus. <laughs> yeah, I remember I, I was in school with Stuart Goodyear. Oh, and, oh, of course, he's famously, yeah, he, he does that. Yeah, he would t- always at the holiday party. So he would ask the audience to shout out, you know, some Christmas carol or Christmas song and then, you know, to, to call out different composers and he'd imitate. So it is pretty amazing to see it in person and definitely in the movie. Yeah, of course, as a kid, I mean, I I loved him farting at the end of that. That was just about the greatest thing. I, like, I probably can guarantee you if we showed that movie to our kids. Oh, yeah. That would be the one scene they would remember. That's all they would be talking about. <laughs> we'll just cover their cover their eyes for the... For the rest of it, you know, the, the blood and the, the death. And that is, I, I mean, an amazing moment just f- dramatically for the movie as well when Salier is there at the party, but in disguise, and he calls out, play Salieri and then Mozart humiliates. And I, I think I really believe he doesn't know that it's Salieri. No, he asking. doesn't. Of course he doesn't. And, um, but he just, I think that's the point in the movie. He's not a, he's right. He's not out to, he's yeah. impish, but he's not cruel in any way. Um, like all the, but that's, that's what's so maddening about him. All this, all this, <laughs> you know, pain and suffering that he inflicts on Salieri is completely unintentional. And I think that scene sort of, summarizes that in some way and at the same time all the pain that salieri wants to inflict on mozart or or even does if we're to believe that he was behind some of these bad things um mozart never knows that it came from him sure and i mean that's central to the plot that you know there's there's something very guileless about about mozart too cynthia nixon (laughs) i'm frightened very very frightened she was only miranda uh she was only 19 Wait, you said 17. Did I say 17? You did say 17. Wow. Okay. That's even. I mean, I remember reading that, you know, reading the bios of the Sex and the City cast that she was the only, or I I think Sarah Jessica Parker was also a child actor or, you know. Uh, Right. She was. But somehow, like, Cynthia Nixon even, like, 
predated like her age wise started acting even earlier than she did so she was the right. one who had really been like the sort of lifelong actors and i think she had done more theater or yeah probably too but yes yeah, so, i mean I, I remember being thunderstruck you know when you see you know you make the connection like oh this is the actor from such and such you know and yeah there's a couple of those we've got um I think Poppy from Seinfeld. It blew my mind when I realized Poppy from Seinfeld was, you know, in Dirty Harry. He was, he was. Oh yeah, uh, um, Chico. Chico from Dirty Harry. Yeah, that. Hopefully, I'm blowing somebody's mind right now by telling them. Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> You've seen Seinfeld and Dirty Harry I mean, as much as we have. Yes, and you know, Poppy is a hysterical character. So, um, there was that. But so, you know, I remember watching Sex in the City, and I'm not even sure when. I realized, or maybe it was just so obvious because she looks pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, that's, you know, the housemaid from... The frightened girl. Which, and she's very, very frightened. And she's she's eating the... What, are, what is she eating? Cookies or something? Oh, when she's reporting back to Sully. Yeah, and she she actually, you know, I hate to say this, in Sex and the City, I feel like there are definitely moments where I think, you know, the acting, I, I maybe it's not, maybe that's not the greatest writing or I don't know what it is, but, but in, in Amadeus, she was, you know quite good i think and anyway the way she eats the cookie like she's eating you know she does seem frightened she's sort of very mousy and she eats this cookie in a very grateful mousy way yeah grateful too like it's obvious she's this is a luxury for her to get yeah because doesn't he he offers her another he's like have another or something and yeah and she then she reaches out for it and you can tell she you know she's very tentative but you know Mm -hmm. and on the one hand she's spying on on mozart sort of you know aiding in his eventual demise and so you can't help but feel sort of like you know like you don't like her or you know she's obviously you feel negatively toward her but you know she's still kind of rooting for her and she's not such a major character that you've got you know <laughs> rooting for her and not rooting for her, you know you, you you know she's she's very good i think she's you know very convincing as the mouse mousy spying housemaid <laughs> how about the fact that in this movie the operas that somebody is composing or even the, the subject matter of an opera that someone's thinking of composing is a major, you know, it's a major topic of conversation. It's a scandal even, you know, Mozart wants to write an opera based on the marriage of Figaro and that's going to convulse society. I mean, and, aren't you in awe of a time when such a thing could well, yeah. cause this kind of, and it's not a stretch at all. I mean, I, I was thinking at first I thought, oh God, yeah, that never happens today. And you know, I, I thought there have been some articles about, okay, someone doesn't like the sets of this Wagner opera at the Met or something. And then I remembered, um, you know, John Adams, the death of Klinghoffer, his opera actually had protests. Right. That was a That's big right. a big news article at the time, news news item at the time. Yeah. Um, so I suppose but that's it's not, the yeah, exception. Not the yeah. I mean, but we're talking about a time also when like, what was like a dissonant chord in like a Haydn symphony Right, <laughs> caused a scandal, a scandal. Like what the? Okay. Yeah, well, but I mean, these were you know these the operas were basically our rock concerts and Hollywood movies all wrapped into one. I mean, that was and so that's what I that's what I envy. I think that you know, of course, there's so many things that are like that you know about that so restrictive. What, what kind of atmosphere is that to live in? You know, where you can play a dissonant chord and then get stoned in the street or something. You know, I mean, like that's crazy. But at the same time, now it just you know, the things and the amount that it takes to shock someone or, you know, society. It's just like, it's, it's too much, you know, gone the other way and we're all, we're completely numb. But, um, but so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, that's, that's a very believable part of the story. And that's actually true, right? I'm, I'm 
which I knew for sure, but... Oh, right. Yeah, that yeah, people would hear... That, well, no, I mean that, that this actually happened, right? That they, there were probably actual objections Oh yeah. to the libretto. Yeah, and, you, you know, Mozart would write in his letters, in his diary, you know, that he was being attacked by a cabal of Italian. He did actually mention this himself, you know, the, in the movie, they're always talking about the Italians, but uh, he, right. he wrote about them that way as well. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And, you know, sp- speaking of you know, these edicts and a restrictive environment, the um, the whole, the, there's a scene where they tell Mozart, right, no ballet in the operas. And so, they, they tear out sheets of the music. And in the end, the emperor comes in and sort of saves the day by saying that he hates the, they make him watch the, the scene with no music at all. They're just dancing around on the stage. And he and that actually was like, true too, that he, there was an edict, no ballet. And that has, I feel like that must be true, that they wouldn't I, just put that in. It seems weird that they would make that up. I, I don't know. I, I haven't looked that up. I'm just remembering. Um, and it was something to do with like the class. Yeah, I think there was, a, there was and... a desire not to... Uh, I think they didn't want to appear to be French. Yeah, there, there was something. Oh, the French that, thing. That's yeah. right, because of Marie Antoinette. And the whole, I mean, The Marriage of Figaro was a French play, right? And so, that was one of the objections to it in the first place. I see. Again, these are nuances that would have escaped my eight-year-old. Yeah, yes. Brain. But it reminded me of uh, Andre Previn and his his book. He actually titled it No Minor Chords. And the reason for that was that when he was working at, I think it was MGM, but I can't remember what, whatever major studio, at some point the head, the president himself came in and uh, watched a screening of something. And, you know, these are the days where someone's word could just destroy, make or destroy a career. And so, he heard something in the music and he said, wait, you know, what was that? He asked his assistant, you know, rewind the reel. 10 seconds. What what did I just hear in the music there? And the boneheaded assistant said, oh, sir, I think that was a, a minor chord. He says, well, I don't, I don't like that. No more of those in any, any MGM picture from now on. No minor chords. Even this sounds like, <laughs> like a much different time when people even could, this guy, what kind of ear does this guy have? He can just, you know, pluck out a minor chord. Well, we don't know if it actually was a minor chord. I mean, it could have just been like a string pizzicato or something, but... <laughs> I mean, who even knows what a minor chord is anymore? Like these people are singing around going, you know, like I want, well, I want scratchy. I want, you know. Good point. But scary. anyway, the president, you know, the, they put it in a memo. And so Andre Previn, all the composers, I guess, who worked at this studio, took a mimeograph of the, the memo and put it on their walls. No minor, from henceforth, there shall be no minor chords. So I was, yeah, no ballet in my operas. I feel yeah. like that. But, Sounds like where we were. Oh. <laughs> Somebody else said that. <laughs> How about the insult that Mozart, uh, or, well, it's supposed to be a, a backhanded compliment, right? But there are endless variations of this musician joke. So, after a Salieri opera that Mozart <laughs> attends and he uh, he can't think of anything good to say about it and he, in front of everybody, he's forced to come up with some comment and he says, uh, one hears such sounds and what can one say but Salieri? <laughs> yes, yes, we do use that one a lot. But I mean, what what are some of the other ones? Like, oh, you've, you've never sounded better. You've never sounded better. Yeah. Oh, there there have got to be others. All right, well, we'll come back to it if, oh, if we uh, think of it. Well, your dad always your ha- your dad has one. It's like always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. No, that's not exactly the same. That's your dad's standard. <laughs> okay. Response: If he ever says that to me, uh, I know it's time to retire. <laughs> well, right before that, Mozart's had to endure. You know, he sees the emperor place a medal around Salieri's neck and he says, I, I declare this is the, the best opera yet written. And I mean, I know you've, we've all been in that situation, right? Where you 
you just see some praise heaped on someone else and it just, it's like, yeah, burning coals on your own head and you've got to, I mean, if you're going to survive, you've got to get past those moments and just. Yeah. It happens a lot, I would say. Yeah. I mean, something that you, you feel strongly is mediocre or, and that, that's exactly how it's presented in the movie too, but yeah. And something I, is just, you're right. That's this movie. This movie really kind of strikes at the heart of a lot of what, like, I don't know how they, they were so good at, at, at presenting like sort of the insecurities of even someone like Mozart, you know? Yeah. Well, he's always asking people, you know, I mean, you liked it, right? You really, really liked it. And especially Salieri. I mean, that's, that's why this the relationship between them really works. And yeah. also, I mean, the Salieri's character is so uh, deep and interesting too, because he does so love and admire Mozart's work and like Don Giovanni you know, and this is late in Mozart's life and Salieri's actively, he's trying to suppress this opera in the movie, right? He's scheming to make sure, he says it, I plotted so that it would only be performed five times, but in secret, I attended every one of those five. And it shows him in the balcony all alone. I mean, there's hardly anyone in the hall. There's hardly anyone in the theater because it's failing, but he's in the box just hanging on every word. And that's so crushing. Yeah. Although, you know, I don't think we could relate to that necessarily. You like mean the, you just wouldn't go? The people... You, <laughs> yeah, I mean... Darryl, if you didn't like someone, I you just wouldn't go to the opera. not going because you don't want to like, you know, hear the accolades and whatever. If it's just like a rival that, you know... But if it's someone whose work I just am like so like awestruck by, you know, I, I can't imagine feeling those kind of mixed emotions about it. It's never happened, you know, but I'm not Mozart or Celery. So, you know, I, I couldn't... Well, I mean, this save. is a guy who's prayed since he was a kid, you know, prays to God to make him a great composer. And when he, well, when he sees I mean, Mozart I'm not religious, but you know, I'm going to be a great crucifix. violinist. <laughs> yeah, I want not that really too, happening, but, but not burning any crosses, but no, but you know, my own way. I mean, I suffer terribly because of, you know, wishing I were better or wishing I could do things like someone else, you, for example, you know, there's, there's that. No, uh, I mean, seriously, that's, you know, I I definitely relate to the tortured part. Well, so if there was some, I mean, let's say it's a different time and there were no recordings, no YouTube, and the only chance you had to hear someone really great was to go to their concert. Do you think, and and you knew that they were like, you hated them? You know, maybe I don't love music enough. Like, maybe you would go, maybe, you know. You know, you know, this is not supposed to be like a direct parallel with my or your life or any of this, but so, yeah, I'm not expecting it to line up exactly. But I think the feeling is just that he, he loves music so much, even in a way that I and maybe you also find fascinating because it's just not exactly how we feel. Right. And it's, you know, you really don't see anything else about Salieri's life in this movie. So, I mean, we're everything that we see about him tells us that this is life or death to him. And yeah. Yeah. And then the very opening scene of the movie, I mean, he's. Well, that's why the movie works, you know, the, yeah. the stakes are incredibly high, like, you know, nothing higher than that. So. What about the Requiem and the, you know, the, the final scenes, Mozart's on his deathbed and Salieri's there. He's, he's having to write it down. I mean, I know you couldn't, if that scene came on right now, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I would no. I mean, that's where I think the the skillful execution was was sort of mind blowing for me even now. You know, as a as a grown up, I mean, the dictation, the way he, you know, he he's singing Salieri and he's you know he's writing it down, and it, it really is so believable. You know, the way he's. So I it. read 
that Tom Hulse deliberately went off script and said things that, and they make musical sense, but they were not what was in the script uh-huh. to force a confused and a delayed reaction from F. Marie Abraham. Really? That's what I read. I, I mean, still, you know, I'm not going to say I'm too dumb, but I mean, I when he, the particulars of orchestration, I've never actually stopped to think if they were, it goes with a harmony. Like, I don't, is, well, that, does that make sense? Or is it just that, I love right? that line because it, and he's, I always want to shout that at, you know, there will be some conductor up there that we're, he can't find the place in the music or he can't answer some basic question. And I always just want to shout, it goes with the harmony. I know because they, they always, um, confused, right? but, and I have to think that for the way they lay it out, the, um, confutatis, the way that he builds it up and, um, you know, he saves the strings for last and he says, and now for the real fire. Because in the, in the movie, they let you hear each element and, yeah. you know, it, it's so basic and it's so elementary and, you know, anybody, I suppose, any musician should be able to get that from looking at the score and reconstructing it in their own minds. But still, I, it always takes me in the way that they build it and then let you hear the final result. It, it's like, yeah, yeah it couldn't be improved upon. Really you know? masterful. Yeah, I, I think it's technically perfect. I think it's, it was well conceived and perfectly executed. And then the way that he says Mozart, do you believe in that uh, fire that burns without end? Yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. But you know, that the whole scene and and then of course ending with you know the very the 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 amen with you know the shrouded corpse lying in the communal grave with the lime i suppose it is rising yeah you know, in a cloud from this like dark damp pit yeah you know with other bodies Popper's that, grave you know i you know when you're eight years old you can imagine i mean that's just it's older than our, our older daughter obviously but not that much older, you know, and just imagine how scary that is. You're watching this, you know. I don't think I knew he was dead the first time what? I saw it. I, like, <laughs> I, you thought it was like I, lethal weapon where he's going to like get out of the Well, I just thought how terrible, like they're, you know, I kind of got that Salieri was a bad guy. And so I thought that he was like throwing him into this pit and pouring this Wait, how poison on him. And yeah, I, I wasn't as advanced as you. I was... <laughs> I wasn't wasn't as widely. I'm sure, read. it's an advanced thing. I think you know he's wrapped up in a thing. There was like, I mean, I was I was. Probably you already the saw same. him. Like you saw his wife shouting at him in the bed, right? But first of all, when she shouted, I couldn't tell what she was saying. It sounded like she was saying "foofy," and right. But you get he's not moving or blinking or breathing. And I'm I'm saying the first time I saw it, like, and I didn't know what they were tossing on him. I didn't know what lime was. Okay. I mean, I didn't know either. I, I think I asked my parents, and they told me. I think I remember thinking it was pretty terrifying. It's like, yeah, it's like I mean, weird. I think that the feeling we got from it was the same. I just, well, sure, it's scary. It's like a body being thrown into a pit. But you know, at, at the music with the, yeah. the, the cloud of of lime rising from the grave. Yeah, the director know, knew what he was doing. And that in the the rain, and it's so it's gray, and these women are dressed in black. You know, and there's some, like three people who like actually turn up to to cry over him. You know, and. Right. And I, I guess I never got until later that, um, you know, because supposedly his whole, he says in the movie, Salieri says his plan was that he was going to force this great piece out of Mozart and then kill him. 
And then at Mozart's funeral, you know, they would they would play this piece and Salieri would claim to have written it. That was his whole master plan. Right. And in the end, Mozart's funeral, as you say, was attended by about three people. And it just, it exposes the whole pathetic, you know, his grand plan would have come to nothing even if it had worked. And the piece itself, he never got anyway because it was locked away in this case and um well so then it jumps right to him back with the the priest that's the end of the movie and oh, that's such a great transition too i think it's you feel so drained by this you know everything that's transpired and then they cut to the, the face of the priest who looks he was already pale <laughs> to start with he looks like he's like he's drenched in sweat yeah. and he's like yeah he, he looks like he, he he's completely gutted he cannot yeah can't even come up with like a response to everything he's just heard and salary just laughs at him and they 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 wheel him out and they tell him about and don't you this always sounds so good when they say maestro fresh sugar rolls yeah whenever we're in your i feel like it's not something we would see here but sometimes i see in like european bakeries these you know these buns studded with like big crystals of sugar i think those are yeah. those are probably sugar buns or sugar rolls yeah <laughs> <laughs> but then yeah what what he says i mean that and i can identify with that too. I mean, I think we all can from time to time when he says he rep he's the the patron saint of all mediocrities. He says, I absolve you. What does that mean? Uh, doesn't it? I don't know. I, I always took it to mean like, it's don't worry if you're not extraordinary. You know, it's okay to be mediocre like me. I'm your patron saint. I, I now you're you. being disingenuous. You think you're the patron saint of, of mediocrity. I'm saying I'm the patron saint, but I mean, don't you feel like sometimes you just want to g- give up the, it's exhausting to try being really good. <laughs> it's <laughs> comforting sometimes. Well, I, just I say, feel that way, but you know, you shouldn't feel that way. But, and, uh, I, I, yeah. I'm not the patron saint of mediocrity. I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a supplicant. <laughs> saint Taramoto. But yeah, no, endlessly rewatchable. If it came on right now. Well, I always said like, if it came on, what does that even mean? We don't have, cable anymore so i think we have the dvd somewhere upstairs well you know life is changing that way it's like we haven't watched it because you know the, the extra step of like going putting it in it's like oh we probably wouldn't do that but sure if it was just like you know if somebody appeared and turned it on the tv we would start watching it i mean that's well, we should make a date amadeus date we should we should you know it's 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 time again it's been it is a couple of years yeah and it's what is it Seth? 35th this is the 35th anniversary. That's why we're doing this, right? Yep. That was part, part of the reason. You can expect I, one of these every five years. So. Yeah, that's right. Ever. Can you imagine when that movie turns 40, I'm going to feel like it's time to go out and buy a walker. Hey, we let's make it till the movie turns 100. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so romantic. <laughs> I don't know if you'd still be with me, but... Maybe we should make t-shirts. And say, I'd, I'd watch Amadeus with you on its 100th anniversary. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us for this... Uh, Amadeus rewatchable and uh yeah do check out the new site standpartnersforlife.com subscribe if you haven't and <laughs> Akiko's like enough <laughs> let it end oh dear leave us a review leave us a rating and a review we want to hear your feedback on iTunes all right thanks for joining us see you uh, next stand partners for life <laughs>